0: The party is structurally committed to lying, to gaslighting. And that means that even if you have a very kind of sweet, smiling Republican like Susan Collins, or you have a very scary Republican like Donald Trump, they're, they're just as committed to lying because it's not about their personality.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Aaron Belkin, founder and president of Take Back the Court. Aaron is a professor of political science at San Francisco State University and is also the founding director of the Palm Center, an important LGBTQ rights organization, which had a big role in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and in helping the military lift its ban on transgender personnel. At Palm, Aaron used social science research to shape public opinion, a model he describes in his 2011 book, How We Won. With Take Back the Court, Aaron is now working to inform public opinion about the urgency of expanding the U.S. Supreme Court and has made progress in changing attitudes about that option. Aaron is a very interesting guy and we had a good and wide-ranging discussion about his career and his work as an advocate. You'll want to listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Aaron Belkin of Take Back the Court. Hi, Aaron. Hi. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, Aaron Belkin. I am a political science professor at San Francisco State. And I run the Palm Center, which I founded 23 years ago. And I'm also uh, president of Take Back the Court, which I founded three years ago.
1: I like talking to people who are entrepreneurial in the sense of founding institutions and making them grow and making them operate effectively in the world, which I think is a very difficult thing to do and uh, in a somewhat of a rare skill. So excited to talk to you about kind of the breadth of the activities you've been involved in over a a career. Can you tell me first, like, where did you grow up? What kind of family? What kind of roots do you come from?
0: Absolutely. I was uh, raised in Cleveland in a liberal family, my parents voted for McGovern in '72. Um, they have since arced all the way to the right and voted for Trump uh, at least the first time. Uh, hard to figure wow. out in the second time. Yeah, so so we have uh, we have kind of don't ask, don't tell about uh, politics in the family.
1: I grew up in a liberal family, two teachers, Jewish, Boulder, Colorado. You would think maybe we'd have the same path, but they they have stayed well on the left. Until my mom's death.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I was raised in a very white suburban bubble. The suburb, um, in lots of ways, was was structured around racial and other anxiety. And you know, I would have to let my parents speak for themselves, but they kind of arced from um, Reform Judaism into highly observant Orthodox Judaism, and um, so along with, you know anxieties that uh just a lot of lot of folks um have as they get older um about dying um they're also now in a shul where pretty much 100% of the congregation watches Fox News all day every day and in that world it's rational to be an extreme right right uh right winger so that's 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 where they are
1: that must be a little bit hard
0: uh yeah yeah it's uh, i, I uh,
1: yes <laughs> <laughs> But it sounds like you came out of a very different kind of Judaism and liberal attitudes and stayed with those.
0: Yeah, um I did. I mean, I, re- I remember being opposed to Reagan in high school and I remember being a supporter of of Jimmy Carter before that. So I would I would say my arc has been from a kind of uh, moderate democratic place as a kid to um, a more um Probably extreme partisan and progressive outlook, which I have now.
1: Yeah, not unusual at all. So, tell me about your educational path.
0: I went to public school through sixth grade and then switched to a private school for middle school and high school. Was very, very lucky. Um, It was a really rigorous education with lots of emphasis on writing and analysis and three-hour exams to prepare us for college. And then uh, studied international relations at Brown. Took a few uh, years uh, off to work, and then uh, went to uh, what I refer to as graduate school instead of graduate school. Although I didn't invent that, I think that was I think that was Robin Williams and Mork and Mindy, but it might not be accurate. Anyways, uh, I uh, I went to graduate school, which was very gradual, seven years, and got my PhD in political science at Cal at UC Berkeley. And focused political science is kind of like any discipline kind of carved up and in in, uh, in different ways. And so my focus was uh, international relations and within that international security and within that uh, military studies or civil military relations. But the degree is political science.
1: Yeah. And, and you went out on the market to get a political science professorship. Is that was that your next step or what came next?
0: Yes, I went straight from grad school to being a professor, and I'm still a professor. So that has been a constant since, uh, uh, I guess, tw- well, 20, 23, 24 years. And so starting to get the hang of
1: that, where are the
0: places that you've taught? So I was uh, an assistant professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, and then uh, got tenure there and was uh, promoted to associate. I took a year off uh, to check out Hunter College in New York, um, uh, where I was a professor of psychology, but then decided to come back to California um, and then moved over to San Francisco State about 12 years ago, plus or minus, um, and then was promoted to full once I got to San Francisco State.
1: What sort of things have you taught along the way?
0: Um... Well, so I was hired 24-ish years ago to teach um, international relations. So so at UC Santa Barbara, um, uh, international relations theory, civil-military relations, political psychology, some social science methodology. I did a an edited book with a mentor on um, counterfactual thought experiments, which was really a kind of a meditation on causal inference and social science methods, in other words. But then when I switched to San Francisco State... Um, I was hired uh, as an Americanist, and so um, most of my teaching has consisted of big uh, lecture courses, Introduction to American Politics. However, um, there's a very cookie cutter way to teach that course, which you know involves a week on the presidency, a week on the courts, a week on federalism, and we cover all that. But but I organized the course around. Um, Uh, A a two-week meditation at the beginning on the relationship between capitalism, militarism, paranoia, and willful ignorance. Paranoia means xenophobia, racism, transphobia, uh, uh, sexism, misogyny, all that stuff. So capitalism, militarism, paranoia, and willful ignorance. And then we go through about a dozen different policy areas. uh, food policy, transportation policy, housing policy, military budget, um, and, lo- and and ask whether that, that kind of um, framework involving the relationship among those four uh, great factors helps explain how power operates um, in those policy areas.
1: That sounds like it makes it more fun to teach.
0: I think the students like it more and get it more. Um, it's more relevant to me. Um, although this year I'm going to switch the whole syllabus and just use the whole course to make an argument that um, fascism is probably coming to the United States but up till now it's just been yeah as I described
1: and all those things that you describe that witch's brew of misogyny etc I assume these are things that you like <laughs>
0: um, I, I mean I, I I did not change my lecture on the Republican Party after I first wrote it in 2010 and it's not because I was being lazy about that particular lecture, but it was because I could see Trumpism coming from that far away. And I believe that the GOP is essentially the same party today um, that it was a generation ago. It's just that the, um, the camouflage has been uh, kind of uh, exposed um, and you can, it's easier to see what they are. But I, I, mean, I, I had a front row seat to what the GOP is during the roughly 12 years that I worked on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so that's that's how I developed my perspective on the GOP.
1: What was it about that Don't Ask, Don't Tell fight that revealed who they truly are?
0: Well, well uh, Yale historian Tim Snyder um, has argued that um, once a political party or a political project is organized around lying, um, that really anything is possible all the way up to fascism and even genocide. And you could see in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell conversation that the GOP um, was literally structurally committed to untruth. And wh- whatever word you want to use, willful ignorance, untruth, lying, distortion, whatever it is. But it wasn't about individual choices that that party leaders were making and, and also flagging that a, a tiny minority of GOP leaders eventually... Um, came to endorse getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. But for the most part, um, they were they were locked in by, by bigger factors into um, lying and gaslighting. Um, and, you know, we could talk about it it, it. it took a little kind of time to figure out what those broader factors were that were locking them in. but But it was that engagement with a party that just systematically and repeatedly lied that clued me into what they're about. Why did you enter that particular fight? Um, because in graduate school, graduate school, um, as I mentioned, um, my PhD, even though it was political science, it was effectively military studies. So I'd had a longstanding interest in the military. And then in grad school, I came out of the closet and that was also around the time when president Clinton tried to compel the military to lift the longstanding ban on gays and lesbians. And during that policy conversation in 1993, um, uh, opponents in both parties said um, just the most horrifying and outrageous things um, about uh, gays and lesbians in the military. So, so kind of part one in answer to your question was a confluence of my military interests and my um, my identity and my LGBT interests. And then part two is that um, there's a so wonderful leader in the queer community, Urvashi um, who's been important and clear-sighted and uh, just really wise and brilliant for decades. And she wrote a book called Virtual Equality, I think almost maybe 30 years ago almost at this point, uh, maybe more like 25 years ago. Anyways, one of the points she made in the book is that um, we need more think tanks in other words, you can't just have good ideas, but you have to institutionalize those ideas. Um, and I, I'd also worked for a, a think tank that was very engaged with policy uh, uh, at Brown. Um, and so I decided that when, if and when I ever were to graduate uh, and get my degree and become a professor, that I would like to not just study gays and lesbians in the military. Not that there's anything wrong with just studying something. That's what professors are supposed to do. But I decided I'd also like to work on them in a more kind of policy-oriented way.
1: And that's the Palm Center?
0: Yeah. We had a different name when we founded, but that's the Palm Center, which just is now having its 23rd birthday.
1: Tell me about the the founding of that and what it took to put it together.
0: Uh, Are you asking um, intellectually and or organizationally? Uh, Okay. Um, So organizationally, um, you know, an an institute needs a few things um, to get started. And there's kind of a chicken egg dynamic because each thing you need depends on having the other thing. So you kind of have to like build a little uh, and then expand on what you've built a little and then keep expanding a little on what you've built. And so the simplest example of that is you need money. But in order to have money, you have to convince foundations and donors that you're legitimate. But in order to convince donors and foundations you're legitimate, you have to have things like um, a board of advisors. But a board of advisors is, you're not going to get distinguished people to come together as a board if you have no money, uh, unless you have a personal relationship. So so it was a bit of a chicken egg. Um, I was very lucky and very privileged to have some incredible mentors, including Um, Chip Blacker at Stanford, who had had a very senior role in the Clinton White House and the National Security Council. And so I approached Chip with my idea for a think tank and approached a few other people who Chip connected me to and a few very distinguished professors who I'd worked with in in grad school and asked them to form a nucleus of of a board. And then um, the, the universities I was affiliated with at least at the time, were not rich. Uh, UC Berkeley Grad School, which I was just leaving, and UC Santa Barbara starting uh, in my professorship. But they did have little tiny pots of $500 here, $1,000 here, available for professors um, to kind of use in general ways. And so I was able to put together just a tiny bit of money, you know, with the board in place and the money, um, a little bit of money, um, wrote a mission statement, um, sent the mission statement to... Um, a bunch of uh, thoughtful people got feedback and then applied for permission from University of California to become an official research institute. Um, and then the board, Chip Blacker, went to one of his friends at a foundation and got us a $30,000 grant. And so we were, um, we were off and running. But the, the personalistic dimension was, was very important. Another example, another mentor at Stanford, Lynn Eden, was connected to a woman who'd done a lot of fundraising in the LGBT community who was sitting at home with nothing to do because she'd broken her leg. Um, so I sent the proposal to her, um, and she loved the proposal. And so she went out and she raised us some of our first major, major grants. And with each, with each grant and each donor, you'd ask kind of who else should I approach? Um, uh, there's actually one other, um, uh, organizational story I'd like to tell just before addressing the question of strategy, which is in, in my world at that time and now um, pretty much the, the 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 most famous, most important leader um, was named Greta Kammermeier, who um, has a PhD in nursing, um, was a, a colonel in the military, uh, was fired f- uh, for being uh, a lesbian. This was. Uh, almost 30 years ago. And um, when President Clinton tried to get the Pentagon to lift the ban, um, Greta's case was elevated in Congress and on the news and in public as as an example of the loss of talent um, that we were suffering as a result of firing gays and lesbians. So she was way, way above my pay grade in terms of fame and connections. But I was able to um, find her phone number. I can't remember how. And I just called her. I was just a kid and I was kind of mumbling, I guess. And she cut me off and she said, tell me what you want, or I won't respect you. And <laughs> I said, I'd like you to be on my board and have a fundraiser for me at your house. And she said yes to both. And so, that,
1: yeah. And how did that fundraiser come off? Was that as big a, a step forward as you kind of hoped when, when she agreed to it? Or is it more of a story along the way?
0: No well um, she and her wife Diane um, live uh, in uh, Puget Sound near Seattle and I flew up there and rented a car and took a ferry and arrived at their house and was so nervous I mean she's really a really a hero in my world. I was a little intimidated and I, I got there early in my rental car and she's Norwegian and so she'd um, she'd prepared a whole table of Norwegian food for the guests. And she asked me to stir the uh, very oily potato salad. And I was wearing khakis and I, um, I, I got a big splotch <laughs> of olive oil right on my groin. So it looked like I had, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah uh, you know, uh, Urinated in my pants, and I was too embarrassed. To t- I realized now. Without, Greta and I are very close friends, and now I I've told her the story. I could have just said, "Hey, Greta, you know, could I have an apron?" But I didn't know what to do because you know, fifty potential donors were coming. In <laughs> so, so, I, so I so I grabbed a copy of our uh, organizational plan, the binder, and held it with my left hand over my groin area, and just shook hands with my right hand for the next three hours. And, um, uh, people are like what's yeah. going on with this guy and after and after the donors left Greta was like why are you holding that book and I was like oh I don't know it just makes me comfortable <laughs> um, but I don't think it affected the fundraiser but you know we we raised a few thousand dollars but not I, I don't think it was north of five so but it
1: started a, a friendship with somebody like that which is which is a huge thing right
0: well, in a professional collaboration. I mean, she was there, even if we hadn't had the event, she agreed to join the board. And so she, she felt so strongly about our mission.
1: I asked you about what you taught along the way. What did you write along the way? What were the books, articles? What were the main thrust of what you were doing for research and that kind of output?
0: yeah so i'll answer that but and but i just want to flag so i didn't talk about oh um, the actually response to your question so should i do that first or should i do that after the teaching
1: i lost that. so yeah, do that first and then i'll ask that question again and i'll cut out my, my mistake there oh
0: no that's okay I, yeah. I, I i i like awkwardness so i don't you know I think <laughs> well i am sure i can convey plenty of that <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I have expertise in awkwardness um you know i mentioned i had this epiphany in reading Irvashivad's book that we need more think tanks. And so I also having worked at a foreign policy think tank at Brown that was directly engaged with the people around Gorbachev as the Cold War was ending, and they were kind of doing research translation to um, help Gorbachev's folks and folks in our state department kind of minimize the risk of nuclear war as the Cold War ended. And also the the president of Brown University at the time, Howard Swearer, um, his whole presidency was organized around the idea that knowledge is not just for the bookshelf, but it's for informing public policy. So, so at a broad level, I kind of got that research institutes are important for kind of translating scholarship for the purposes of public policy. But I didn't really understand the social justice model that we would ultimately have. And so I wrote a mission plan that was kind of activity based that said, you know we will take um, oral histories from veterans and we will study gays and lesbians in the military and we will hold conferences and we will have a newsletter and things like that. But that wasn't really why the Palm Center eventually came to have what I believe was a pretty helpful impact. The real um, evolution in the strategic thinking and the kind of moment, and it was a moment when the light bulb went off and I could see our, our social justice model just super clearly. And I I saw it and then we pursued it. Well, we've been pursuing it for the 22 years since I first saw it. Um, So about a year after our our founding was a soldier named Barry Winchell was beaten to death with a baseball bat while he was serving in the army uh, at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And he was beaten to death with a baseball bat because he was perceived to be gay. And this was front page... Uh, coverage in the New York Times for two weeks. There was an incredible uh, group in Washington, service members, Legal Defense Network, that was dedicated to Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal, that was investigating the case and uh, generating very important media headlines about it. And um, at the end of that two-week period, the New York Times published an op-ed. And and New York Times op-eds were pretty important then because there was no internet. So that was very expensive real estate. And if you get your idea in the New York Times op-ed page, that was just it, that was really the gold standard for for, for public persuasion. Anyways, so they published a, an op-ed by the former commandant of the Marine Marine Corps, so the highest general in the Marine Corps, four stars, who said, So sorry that this soldier was beaten to death with a baseball bat. That's a bummer. And but we couldn't possibly Uh, change the policy on gays and lesbians and bisexuals in the military, we couldn't possibly repeal don't ask, don't tell, because gays and lesbians undermine unit cohesion. And unit cohesion is the glue that holds military units together. And if the soldiers and the service members don't trust one another, uh, the military cannot pursue its mission, will not be able to win wars. And because straight service members don't trust gays, you can't allow gay and lesbian service members to serve openly in the military. So, so he was resuscitating the line that opponents had rallied around in 1993 when they fought Clinton. The opponents had a debate, should we oppose Clinton uh, in terms of kind of moral arguments that homosexuality is immoral, or should we make up this phony unit cohesion rationale, which was complete bullshit. The military knew it was complete bullshit. So they, they conducted the conversation under phony auspices, arguing that gays and lesbians would undermine unit cohesion. The, this Marine Corps commandant, former commandant, was resuscitating this argument. And, um, and there was there – was, I mean, the military had research at the time that showed that that was bullshit. So, so I drafted uh, an op-ed explaining the research that showed that gays and lesbians don't undermine the military and worked with two of my board members, Chip Blacker from the Clinton White House – and Larry Korb, who had served in a very senior Pentagon role in the Reagan administration, so bipartisan, and we all finalized the draft together. And they signed it, and we uh, sent it to the New York Times, and the New York Times published it as an op-ed. I I sent that op-ed then to the Haas Foundation, uh, Evelyn and Walter Haas Jr. Fund, and they sent me a check for $7,500 just for the op ed after having declined to fund us before. But then I could see, oh, uh, we need to we need to organize our entire identity and strategy at the palm center around dismantling the unit cohesion rationale because as long as opponents can make that argument with a straight face it will never be safe for politicians to repeal don't ask don't tell because politicians will come along and say this is unfair and generals and admirals will say sorry uh military effectiveness is more important than fairness people think that the palm center's mission was to do research that's not our mission it's never been our mission. The mission is to do research and use that research as the basis of media campaigns to inform public opinion and to, and at that time to address this idea that gays and lesbians undermine cohesion. The notion being that if we could dismantle that argument in the court of public opinion, which took about a decade to do, we could open up a space for litigators and politicians and grassroots activists and lobbyists to change the policy.
1: What was the counter argument? What was the research? What was the process of of changing?
0: Yeah. So, so, so the process was, and this is why you can't just have a good idea. If you want to inform public opinion, you got to institutionalize the idea. Um, So the, the strategy was based on a repetition model in the same way that if you saw one Honda commercial, then when it becomes time to buy a car, you're very unlikely to buy a Honda. But if you've been exposed to a lifetime of pro-Honda messaging, you might buy a Honda. Um, and so the key was repeating the idea and not just repeating it in obscure social science scholarship on library shelves, but getting the media to cover research showing that that gays and lesbians don't undermine the military. And that it was really hard to do that because Thousands of studies come out all the time and get no research, no media coverage. You know, who knows what the number is, but I would say ninety nine point nine 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 percent of scholarship never gets into the media. So it's hard to get scholarship into the media, and it's particularly hard to get scholarship into the media when every study makes the same point. Because you know, you can make that move once or twice. But once the journalists see like, oh, another study from the Palm Center showing that gays and lesbians don't undermine the military, it's not newsworthy after a certain point. And by the way, I want to want to flag. we never gave our authors writing assignments and sometimes we'd do research that finds that here or there gays and lesbians did undermine unit cohesion and we would very loudly distribute that research because we never thought we had to have a hundred percent of the evidence on our side. We just thought the preponderance of evidence would be on our side if we looked in an honest way. And so the key was three or four times a year, I think about 35 times for a decade, and this literally worked every time, um, we would release a new study or a policy memo or data set or something and generate national media headlines. And that means New York Times or CNN or national network news at that level um, around the central message in the study. And so the, the trick was making each uh media campaign each mini campaign the three or four per year um fresh enough and interesting enough that it would be newsworthy so by, so, so the first time we did that um we just did a study on the canadian military found that gays and lesbians had, were allowed to serve there had not undermined unit cohesion gave it to reuters reuters did a national story boom that was the last time we were able to just do a study and give it to a reporter. And by the end of the decade and the, the 35th time, our last story that we engineered um, cost, I think, $100,000 in staff time and two years to build. Um, because by that, What that one was, was we got 104 generals and admirals to sign a statement saying gays and lesbians don't undermine unit cohesion. And then that got onto CNN and AP did a national story on that. Um, and so it was kind of just figuring out a a different enough way to study the same question or say the same thing, if that's what the research showed three or four times a year for a decade.
1: I think it's fascinating to hear this sort of inside story of that happening, because, you know, I was paying attention when Clinton was inaugurated when they attempted to open the military when Sam Nunn and other people kind of slapped him in the face right out of the gate. Um, I, I remember being upset about it, but it wasn't central to, to what I was worried about. But I was worried about like the administration getting off on the right foot and getting a whole host of things. And I remember this term unit cohesion from them. And then I remember sort of wondering if that was true or not and then I remember kind of absorbing what clearly you were doing over time during my own life and not thinking ever hey this is like the deliberate efforts of a group of people right this is just me living in the world reading the newspaper paying attention to cable news or whatever and and I find that over and over now that I'm paying attention to The whole ecosystem of how advocacy works that you know there's a lot of the stuff that's extremely deliberate and really worked very hard on this palm center in particular did did it grow over time did it staff up how much funding and people did it take to continue to do this or was it kind of on a shoestring
0: well it's always been on a shoestring in think tank terms because it's pretty you know, focused. Well, it's focused, but also think tank, you know, something a friend of mine runs a think tank with a $25 million annual budget. And that was never us. I think our first year we raised about $60,000 and I probably had one or two people helping me and some scholars doing uh, contract work to do studies. And we just grew on kind of a straight line every year until the end of don't ask, don't tell when we were probably at about, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight hundred thousand dollars a year, plus or minus, and a staff of yeah, seven or eight or nine, something like that. But no, no full time employees. Everyone was part time um, and virtual. We never had offices. Um, and then on the transgender ban, um, which we pivoted to after Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, we've been a little bit smaller, um, but not much. I think our budget last year was something like seven hundred thousand dollars, with like eight team members, plus or minus.
1: Why was it called the Palm Center? Or why did you rename it that?
0: Well, when we launched, I was trying to do everything I could to show that the center was honest. And, you know, not just, you know, that we, if we found data that contradicted our beliefs, we would be honest about that and talk about it. Um, And so, you know, there are different ways to do that. And I thought one of the ways to do that would be to have a really clunky, like non-marketing name, like a name that, a marketer would never come up with. So our first name was Center for the Study of Sexual Minorities in the Military, or Kiss Me for short. Is <laughs> um, 20 syllables, and everyone hated it, which was kind of the point. But anyways, um, a few years down the line, Michael Depalm died of AIDS and left a few million dollars to his friends to run as a foundation. And they um, announced that they were giving away one $1 million grant in uh, LGBT rights and a couple others in uh, music and arts and other things. But anyways, we applied for that grant. And I mean, it's like to, to, to rename a center at the University of California for a million dollars is like, that's not done. I mean, usually if you name a center at the University of California, you're giving a lot more than that, but no one else was lining up to give us a million dollars. So we became the Palm Center and uh, and very happily have been that. It
1: makes all kinds of sense. Um, I saw that you wrote up sort of how we won on this. What's the general thesis there um, beyond what you've already told me? How did you win that fight?
0: Yeah, so we, we, we used research to inform public opinion um, along the way uh, dismantling the idea that gays and lesbians hurt the military and that opened up a space for litigators and lobbyists and grassroots activists to change the policy because no one took Opponents seriously when they claimed in the end game that gays and lesbians hurt the military, so they were just seen as liars. So we sucked the oxygen out of that argument. Now, how do we do that? There were a few pieces to that. Um, one piece, as I mentioned, was um, to use research. In other words, you know, if there were a media headline, uh, "Activist says gays and lesbians don't hurt the military," that's different than. New research from University of California shows gays and lesbians don't hurt the military. So one was to use research and instead of just asserting our point. A second was iteration. So the notion that you know printing one op-ed or releasing one study probably wouldn't change public opinion, but um, an iteration-based approach would be helpful. A third uh, important part of the strategy was working with validators. So the Palm Center, um, often we did not put um, our name on what we were doing um, because it was more credible for someone else to do that. So The example I just told you, 104 generals and admirals um, calling for the repeal of um, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and arguing that gay, it's Don't Ask, Don't Tell that hurts the military, not gays and lesbians. We did the press release. so. But, 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 but it was the generals and admirals who were, who were carrying our message for us. Um, uh, we worked with a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, John Shalakashvili, so the top general officer in the United States military, to publish a New York Times op-ed saying he'd been wrong about gays and lesbians in the military. So the key, as, as much as possible, was to work with validators to, to make our point. Um, And then another piece of the strategy, which was not visible from the outside, but it was about kind of insider-outsider partnerships. And uh, Professor Mary Katzenstein wrote a book about how advocates had moved the military on policy towards women service members and also how advocates had moved the church And I forget exactly what they were trying to move the church to do. But anyways, they moved the church to do something. But her argument was that in both cases, moving these big institutions required networks and partnerships and collaborations among outside advocates and scholars and thought leaders and people inside the organizations. And so um, in the case of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, over about 10 years, I think I made about 30 visits to military universities and, and these were not advocacy um, visits, these were visits to talk about the research um, that addressed whether or not gays and lesbians hurt the military. And the folks who invited us were not doing advocacy, they, although some of their colleagues uh, did think they were doing advocacy, but they were trying to make sure that the military was having conversations based on research instead of emotions. It was very dangerous for some of our hosts to invite us to campus. But what that did was that visibility on these campuses, uh, West Point, Air Force Academy, uh, Army War College, uh, Naval Academy, empowered our allies, both the students and also the faculty, um, to have conversations with their peers. And we almost never got to see those conversations. But those conversations, I I believe, had an important kind of trickle out um, effect. I I mean, there was actually a shouting match at the Army War College once um, after one of my lectures where a woman who had just kind of had to sit by quietly all year while her – the students at the Army War College are mid-career officers um, who are likely to get promoted to a very high level on the fast track. But anyway, she had to sit there while the other students in the class, these other officers, said – terribly homophobic things. And after my visit, she was just like, fuck that shit. And she was like, you know, the research shows you're full of shit. And it became a shouting match. And, and actually some of the, the military professors who we worked with during the, those um, visits were then flown to Washington during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal time, the process of repealing the policy. And they, and they ended up writing the, um, the Pentagon's, uh, repeal and implementation plan. So, so, so insider outsider partnerships were also very, very, um, important.
1: That sounds like a pretty rewarding thing to be part of.
0: Yeah. I mean, like many advocacy campaigns, um, there, there are kind of doubled implications and, and I think the work had a militarizing, um, effect that would not have been, um, my first choice, but, um, But despite the costs of the work, um, I am very proud of what we did, acknowledging that there was a a large network of advocates and scholars and organizations working on the policy, even on the public education piece. But I think our public education work was was important. I mean, the the day we broke the Arabic linguist story, I think, was the day when the military lost the public forever we were able to kind of uh, Arabic linguists fired for being gay at a time when we didn't have enough linguists to translate the cables about the September 11th attack, you know, and the public was like, what the fuck? Like we're firing Arabic linguists for being, gay. you know, and and so, and we were able to do things like that enough um, that, that I think we informed public opinion.
1: Awesome. Along this time, you're still being a professor. I'm curious about What your research was and what sort of things you're writing about.
0: Oh, um, so I had some research in the pipeline before I started to work on um, LGBT issues. Um, And so that was just civil military relations. My dissertation was about whether uh, leaders who are vulnerable to a coup d'etat ever engage in war with other nations um, in order to minimize the risk of a coup. So I published that as a book. I published a book with um, uh, one of my grad school mentors I mentioned on counterfactual um, thought experiments in world politics, so a very you know kind of abstract theoretical book. Um, but then um, a lot of my publications um, over the first part of my academic career kind of doubled as scholarly publications that the Palm Center used. Uh, research question. Um, is it true that allowing gays and lesbians to serve would undermine privacy in showers? That was actually a hugely important question for the opponent. I mean, it was bullshit, but they thought it was important. Um, so a colleague and I did a study on that and uh, published it in a social science journal, um, but it was also a Palm Center project. Um, so that, that was my research for, um, for a long time.
1: What was the reason that you decided to wade into the court battle?
0: That was 2018. Um, I had spent a little more than a decade working on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Um, at that point, had also then pivoted and um, worked for, at that time, I guess about five years repealing the military's transgender ban, which was a separate campaign, and then protecting inclusive policy from Donald Trump, which ultimately failed. But then Biden reinstated the inclusive policy when he came into office. But anyway, so I so so, so that work never stopped. and And I mean, to this day, I continue to work on questions of um, transgender military service. So I didn't want to start another project. I was busy enough, but um, I was convinced and still believe that American democracy is probably over. Um, You could even argue that it's already over now, despite the fact that we have the trappings of democracy Um, And despite the fact that Democrats can occasionally win elections, but anyways, we can talk about that short bottom line is I thought democracy was ending slash over. And I thought that the only possible way to uh, restore democracy would be for the Democrats to win in 2020 and for Congress to pass an aggressive democracy bill, voting rights, dark money, gerrymandering, things like that. Uh, electoral integrity they'd have to kill the filibuster to pass that bill, but then and people were starting to make that argument um, but what they weren't seeing and weren't saying um, Was that passing a democracy bill would probably be all but worthless because the stolen Supreme Court um, would strike down the bill um, because Justice Roberts and his colleagues have proved time and again that they're politicians and robes who don't want black people voting And so there was kind of an emotional component to this because I got pretty scared after Mitch McConnell stole the Supreme Court from Barack Obama. But then when I saw um, what was happening under Trump, I became convinced that if democracy was going to be restored, then the court would have to be expanded. However, there were counter arguments against court expansion, which had kind of prevailed since 1937, so for 81 years at that point. And there was a historical conventional wisdom that I thought was wrong, that Roosevelt had tanked his presidency by threatening to expand the court. And so court expansion was taboo. I mean, there was a professor here and there who were supporting the uh, the idea, but there were no organizations, no members of Congress, no candidates, no thought leaders um, calling for court expansion. And so I thought that I could use the lessons I'd learned in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and then transgender military conversations to get court expansion on the table. And I thought if I could get court expansion on the table, that would have a small chance of leading to court expansion. But even if it didn't lead to court expansion, just threatening to expand the court could potentially have a moderating effect on the court. I thought with hindsight, this was so stupid. But I thought maybe I should run for president, kind of like Larry Lessig did, not because he thought he would win, but he really wanted to amplify the conversation about the social justice issues he cared about. And I can't remember if at the time that was money in politics or a privacy issue. But anyways, he was, you know, he was kind of doing like an issue candidacy. And I thought, you know, this court expansion argument is so taboo, there's just no way to get it into the marketplace of ideas without running for president. Very wise friends and strategic advisors convinced me that that was about the dumbest thing I could do, and they said, you know, why don't you just start an institute to get the idea on the map and just do the best you can that way? And uh, they were right. And the institute—I'm super proud of what the Take Back the Court has done. But, anyways, that's why that's why I started Take Back the Court.
1: How has it gone? Uh, would this would take back the court as it as an institution and uh, in having impact?
0: I would argue that the the project has been successful. So when we started, there was no support for the idea of court expansion. Today, we have uh, oh, I should have looked at the numbers before coming on. I think it's forty three members of Congress calling for court expansion and about 92 or 93 organizations calling for court expansion including very powerful organizations like SIU the second largest union in the country there are bills in the house and senate to expand the court Biden felt that he had to do something so he appointed a commission to study the idea which we think is a terrible idea but anyways he the point was he there was enough pressure on him that he felt he had to do something And the idea is on the map. Um, That doesn't mean we're going to get court expansion tomorrow, although, if Congress passes a democracy bill and it's struck down or curtailed as the court continues to destroy Roe v. Wade, support will continue to snowball for court expansion. But even without court expansion happening in this moment, um, both conservatives and liberals have made the point that the court expansion conversation has had at least somewhat of a moderating impact on the court. The court remains outrageously dangerous and a uh, profound threat to democracy. And but there have been a few good and non-terrible rulings like Bostock on transgender rights um, in the last uh, year or two. And court watchers on both sides of the aisle have suggested that that some of that moderation may be uh, Roberts trying to deflate the, the, the kind of take the air out of the court expansion conversation. And, and and I'm proud of that because you know even if the court only r- rules in a more progressive direction on one case that can help millions of people that has worked and and the other part of our kind of social justice model which was moving the Overton window has also worked so the other kind of social justice logic for pushing a court expansion conversation is that it would make it a lot safer to talk about term limits and other judicial reforms and and I think that has worked very well and there's a lot of support for term limits that was not there before the court expansion conversation. And also actually, sorry, the logic in the social justice strategy was that that progressive voters really had not focused on the courts and progressive candidates and NGOs really had not gotten traction helping progressive voters understand the danger of the court. And if you could jumpstart a conversation about court expansion, that conversation would carry with it a story about the danger and the threat of the court and would kind of nudge progressive thought leaders to stop talking about the court in terms of the cases they like, like Brown v. Board and Roe Wade, and to start talking about the court in terms of the dangers of the court. And I, and I would argue that that has worked as well. And we've now got a very robust coalition of uh, judicial reform organizations working together to 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 inform public opinion about court expansion. And so, yeah, I'm super proud of it. Organizationally, you know, behind the scenes, it's been, um, a painful project for me in a way that Palm never was. Um, but, but you asked about the social justice impact and that has been very good.
1: Why has it been hard behind the scenes?
0: I mean, I'm not a court expert and it's a startup and the Palm center for most of the last 23 years, um, when we decide to do something, we do it, and it works. Which means, you know, we get the study. We are able to generate national media headlines about it. Not that every single thing we did worked, but at a very, very high batting average. And the court expansion project, I had all all these stories about myself as like a wise leader and a wise strategist, and I just fell on my face time and time and time and time and time again partly because I'm not a court expansion expert, partly because the idea was so taboo at first that you know donors, thought leaders, potential partner organizations just said that it was nuts and just you know don't talk to me. And also partly because unlike Don't Ask, Don't Tell, where there was a pool of scholars and advocates from the first day that wanted to help, there are some people on the left who've worked on judicial reform, but it's a pretty narrow pool. So it's not like there were really brilliant, strategists who were just kind of knocking on the door to say, you know, can we help the team now three years later is incredible. I mean, it's just amazing, but I didn't know how to find talented peers at first. So it was just a tiny, I mean, you know, at first the project was just me and one other person. I just couldn't find other people. Thankfully uh, that other person was wonderful, but you know, for all these reasons, it's just, you know, it's painful to fall on your face and to kind of, crack open a story about yourself as having been wise and realize that oh, you, you really make a lot of stupid mistakes. So it's fine, but it was just painful.
1: I relate to that because I uh, did really well with my first company and the second company had so many false starts and so much difficulty turning into something, even though the first one took a long time. The second one is I've learned all kinds of things about Lack of infallibility. One of the things that I think I've felt between us is a little bit of a different angle on how big of an emergency our republic is in. And I think we both agree that it's in a great one. But maybe we have a slightly different opinion about whether that is, like you said, the Republican Party as of 2010 isn't really different than the post-Trump Republican Party. I know what you mean, but I'm not sure I totally agree with that. You're gonna teach a course, uh, you said, about whether we're already in an authoritarian country or we're we're headed there, like inevitably, right? While I am incredibly worried that we are going to put Trump in, I think he has at least a 50% chance of being the next president, And I can't stand even hardly to think about it. There's something about the concreteness with which you're addressing that, that makes me blanch. You know, I I don't want to come to grips with this as inevitable for sure. Tell me about what you're thinking about this moment in American history, which honestly occupies many of my waking moments and many of my moments in the middle of the night.
0: Well, I would argue that the danger is Trumpism, not Trump. I, Trump is dangerous. He's also a gift because he exposes what the party is about. But the danger is Trumpism that both predated and will postdate date Trump. So what does that mean? It means that the GOP has become uh, one of the greatest threats to, to American democracy and to the planet. And there's very little Democrats can do unless they unrig the system quickly. So what does all that mean? Well, when political science measure partisanship and polarization they almost always measure it in terms of one dimension which is the the kind of extremity of policy positions. so does a party uh, endorse moderate positions or extreme positions? My argument about GOP radicalism is that it's not really about extreme policy positions exclusively I mean yes the party embraces, super extreme policy positions. I mean, blocking climate change progress. I mean, even, you know, Syria gets that there's a climate change emergency. So so in blocking climate change progress, the party is already saying that they would tolerate the end of civilization. And if party will tolerate the end of civilization, like what won't it tolerate? So so they they embrace policies that are extreme and dangerous and based on bullshit. You know the gun safety policies based on the lie that gun safety doesn't work. You know, on and on and on down the line. So that's true, but their their extremism is multi dimensional. Their extremism involves yes, uh, embracing very dangerous policies, planet threatening policies, but it also embraces sabotaging democracy. Um, so what does that mean? It means keeping black and brown people from the polls. It means flooding this political system with dark money. It means undermining election integrity. It means uh, gerrymandering, which the Democrats do too also, by the way. But it's it's not just kind of a little cheating here and there, but it's a systematic assault on democracy. I mean, just the, the voting piece, New York Times did an incredible expose where they showed that it took 50 years for Republicans to destroy the Voting Rights Act, and it was a coordinated campaign. So, so okay, so, so you've got a party that is committed to sabotaging democracy, that is committed to planet-threatening policies. A third dimension, and I gestured at this before, um, but uh, I'll explain it in greater detail now, is that the party is structurally committed to lying, to gaslighting. And that means that even if you have a very kind of sweet-smiling republican like susan collins or you have a very scary republican like donald trump they're, they're just as committed to lying because it's not about their personality uh, and in fact in a weird way which I'll, i can get to in a minute trump actually told the truth in ways that re- most republicans don't but what does that mean that to say they're structurally committed to lying and remembering professor snyder's point that once a political project is committed to lying all bets are off and, and anything including fascism and genocide is possible. So you got to think of Republicans as a triangular alliance um, in which the party is basically irrelevant. Although, you know, brilliant strategists like Mitch McConnell as voices of this triangular alliance can do great damage. Uh, voices like Brett Kavanaugh as, as uh, uh, representatives of this alliance can do great damage, but it's really the, the, the alliance that's, that's the danger and where the toxicity is and the alliance is between three parts so first of all there is the um, uh, the coke network of elite donors and corporations um, and they want tax cuts and deregulation period full stop and they can't tell the truth about what they want because what they want is unpopular so by definition everything they support is based on a lie. and this goes back a generation I mean under George Bush the second Uh, they put forward a bill to make the skies dirtier, you know, hand out to coal companies as part of their deregulation agenda. They call it the clear skies initiative. So that that's it right there. So literally everything that that side of the Alliance says is bullshit. Then the second part of the Alliance is Trump voters, uh, or, but let's call them resentment voters because I mentioned before, it doesn't matter if they're voting for Tom Cotton or Susan Collins or, or Trump, even though Trump is dangerous. Um, what do the resentment voters want? The resentment voters want scapegoating because they feel empowered when their leaders injure scapegoats, period, full stop. The cruelty is the point. In fact, there's even a book uh, that says the, the cruelty is the point. So I would argue they don't even give a shit who the scapegoat is and, and they have a very flexible and capacious – scapegoating machine. You know, one one electoral cycle, it, it's gays in the military. Let's focus on a caravan of migrants this time. Let's focus on transgender people in the bathroom. Let's focus on uppity women. Let's focus on black people destroying your suburbs. You know, they are through lines, and they kind of emphasize different lines at different times. But but I, I would argue that you know the xenophobes are just as happy if the Alliance is going after transgender kids in the bathroom as it is when they're going after immigrants. So, so the point is that they feel empowered by scapegoating, but they can't tell the truth about what they stand for either because, um, uh, it's pretty, shame. although Trump has removed some of the shame of this, which was the way he was, was honest and speaking truthfully about his, um, his hatred, you know, when he said Mexicans are rapists, etc. But, but this part of the party is structured, you know, we don't oppose, uh, fixing the immigration system because we think brown people are dirty, filthy scum, we think that there's an economic uh, impact on jobs or, or gays in the military. You know, we love gay people, but lifting the uh, don't ask, don't tell would undermine the military. So, so everything that side has to say uh, that says uh, has to be um, dishonest as well when they're not honest about their scapegoating. And so and then the third piece of the triad, of course, is Fox News and the right wing echo chamber, which, which on behalf of the Koch network and the corporations, um, uh, inflames the agendas of both sides um, in order to make sure that the resentment voters go to the polls to send Republican leaders to Washington to cut taxes on the rich and deregulate the economy. So, 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 so every single piece of that triad has to lie in order to get what it wants and what that means is that there is effectively no room for Republican political leaders to tell the truth. Okay, so so you have now a party that is committed to extreme planetary threatening policies, a party that cheats to undermine democracy, a party that is structurally committed to lying. And, the, and this is all like how you measure Republican extremism. And then fourth is, and finally is putting uh, party uh, partisan interests over the national interests to an extreme degree – Now, all parties emphasize their own political interests, but there's an extremity to what the Republicans are willing to do. And you see it in how they're treating um, January 6th. And, you know, so here we had a bloody political insurrection. They don't want to talk about it. They, you know, purposefully thwart investigation. And that's been happening. That kind of radical elevation of narrow interests over the health of the nation has been going on for decades. This is a long answer, and it's almost over, but there, there are a few other pieces of this. So I'll just kind of keep yammering for another uh, second. Um, so you've got a party that is so radical that it will you know, as Trump said, if he shot someone in Fifth Avenue, like his voters wouldn't care. But if he organized a violent coup, his supporters are happy as well. So you've got a party that will literally tolerate anything and is proactively invested in the sabotaging of democracy in order to promote the retrograde economic and scapegoating agenda. Um, and so if a leader came along and said that, you know, authoritarianism or fascism or, uh, or genocide was necessary to do that the voters would be right there. Fox News would be right there. The Koch network would be right there for them. Um, um, That's the, the extremity of the party. But we've already dug ourselves into a hole where effectively we have single party rule. Now, single party rule is not quite the same as authoritarianism, fascism, or genocide. But even though Democrats can sometimes win elections now, consider these three factors. First of all, Because of all the cheating and the rigging of the system, the voter suppression, the gerrymandering, but also the rules of how the Senate is set up, um, you've got a situation where the Democrats cannot win elections unless they have a wave election. So, you know, Biden had to win by 7 million votes in order to prevail in the Electoral College, and he almost lost if just 40,000 voters in three states had changed. And, 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 you know, in the House, the Senate… And the Supreme Court, same dynamic for for Democrats to control the levers of power. They they can't just win fifty plus one. They have to win wave elections. Second of all, if and when they win elections, they effectively can't govern because Mitch McConnell and the Senate uses the filibuster to block almost everything they want to do. And third of all, even if they win an election and manage to enact some important laws and or regulations, the stolen federal courts curtail or strike down those regulations. And when you have a system where one party basically can't win, and even if it wins, it can't govern. And even if it governs, it's governing um, its laws and regulations are curtailed or struck down. That is not democracy. That is single party rule. And that's where we already are. Um, And so um, because of the incentive structure that that emerges out of that three-part alliance, the triad, Republican candidates who don't go along with the extremism of the agenda which is a very ideological agenda because scapegoating and tax cuts are ideological but candidates who don't go along with the lying and the cheating and the you know all that stuff they can't win their primaries and so we are fucked unless democrats pass an aggressive democracy bill very fast and protect that bill from the stolen courts
1: there's a lot to that and it's pretty sewn together i mean we have had periods of one party rule before you could probably make the case that from fdr through lyndon johnson it was a democratic controlled country maybe a little bit more than that the difference is of course what they were trying
0: to do right no no, there's another difference is it wasn't it wasn't based on it it was not based I, i mean you know lyndon johnson cheated so there you know there there was some cheating but structurally it was it was a
1: Right. So it's something it's not it's not one party rule alone. It's one party rule, what you're trying to do, whether you're cheating to do it, whether you're going to lie constantly. It's this confluence of all these different things together. And it's also the structural things like the Electoral College, the Senate that happen to favor small rural states that are aligned with that party's. They weren't thinking about Trump during the Connecticut Compromise or something, but it it's worked out uh, to his advantage or to the Trumpist advantage now, right? The likelihood of getting a lot of democracy reform through this Congress seems low at the moment. Mm, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. But I mean, why are they waiting so long? Like, you know, like if if like why why do you think that there's a failure? To grasp this emergency to the degree that you're grasping it in the institutionalized Democratic Party.
0: Or do you think there is? I, well because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema don't have the same analysis that I do and um, and the because every institution we have, the presidency, the house, the Senate, and the courts are very vulnerable to minority capture, which means the Republicans don't have to have. Majorities to control the the bodies. So so when the Democrats get control, um, our our coalition is is very close to the margin. I mean, we have our senators represent forty nine million more people than theirs do, but we only have fifty senators. Yeah. Um, and so we had sixty not that long ago. We did. Yeah, but that, but there have been a lot of changes since then, and so. Um, and so Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema have a veto, uh, have, have veto power over this agenda. So Currently well, they hopefully hear. I'm wrong and they're right and we're not in an emergency. But, you know, Mitch is trying to run down the clock and centrists in the Democratic coalition don't agree with my analysis. But I want to say one other thing, which is distinguishing, well, actually a couple of things, distinguishing uh, one party rule, uh, you know, under FDR and afterwards and now it's, it's not just that. I mean, first of all, we, there's not much time on the climate change clock, right? And that was not a factor then. But also, that governing coalition was not trying to sabotage democracy and was would not have tolerated the end of democracy. Whereas this coalition, it's clear that they will steal elections, they will support violent insurrections. And I'm pretty sure that whatever happens, we will continue to have elections just as Russia continues to have elections and we will call ourselves a democracy. But but we will not be an effective democracy.
1: There's something in me that wants to separate Trump out from the Trump-influenced Republican that is running scared in there of being primaried and wants to imagine that without this congenital liar who has a knack for turning public opinion in his base wherever he wants that that danger lessens without him if it was a trump copier that they might not have that connection to the i know you're shaking your head but like there's something in me that that has like i've had a number of people particularly on the left say it's not trump it's trumpism and i understand that logic and there's certainly a lot of evidence that that party is in certain aspects worse than him you know like um different than him for sure uh, but that he is a uniquely difficult animal to me he exacerbates things he uh you know he has done things that nobody else in the history of our democracy would try to do like that insurrection like the lying after the election like right now today he is trying to pretend that he lost by our cheating when he's preparing to cheat on his own behalf, to inoculate himself or something. I feel like there is a difference between Trump and Trumpism as you have put it.
0: Well, I mean, and I, you know I fully embrace contradictions at different sites and there I, I would argue there's a contradiction because Trump is dangerous. His reactivity is dangerous. But I don't think he is the problem. And, you know, in a way we're we're lucky we had Trump when we did, not just so that people could see what the Republicans are about, but also because he's too dumb to dismantle the few remaining guardrails that keep us a democracy, like a professional military, whereas the next Republican demagogue that we have is probably gonna be smarter, just because most most people are smarter than he is pretty easy to subvert a professional well I shouldn't say it's easy, but demagogues have been doing that throughout modern history. So, so a smarter person would know how to do that. See the the reason that I would argue or a reason or or a way to see my point, which, you know, could be wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong, but about the, the danger being Trumpism is that all that stuff that I specified before as the ingredients of Republican radicalism, that's been perpetrated by Republicans at every level going back a generation ever since Nixon's Southern strategy, you know, George Bush, the second, who's, you know, stylistically moderate, but he campaigns in 2004 on a scapegoating plank of uh, anti-gay marriage. Well, his father did on, on Horton. Horton. And you know, but but those
1: are, but those are there are many threads to those Republicans in a way that you don't see right now. There's no, almost nobody I've talked to hasn't made a distinction between the Republicans of Mitt Romney and McCain as their standard bearer and Trump.
0: Yeah, but, but look where the party is now. I mean, how they're many of them now they're how? with him now? Well, they're with Trumpism now. If another demagogue chooses to fill that space, they will follow that person. I mean, look how quickly Kevin you know, Kavanaugh was a country club Republican. It took about two days at his hearings before he kind of, you know, tried on and evidently you know, kept wearing the mantle of Trumpism and you start screaming about how he's going to use his position on the bench to screw liberals. I don't think that was a transformation, but yeah. Okay. Um, he's uh, been working
1: in their project
0: for his whole life. Well, th- that's my point. That's my point is it was a stylistic transition. It was not a substantive transition. And, you know, I'm not saying that if Susan Collins had been the president in on January 6th, she would have led a coup. I'm saying this. The, the nobody is,
1: else would have. Nobody else would
0: well, have. Well, y-
1: Name one other person who would have. I mean, maybe they will now that he's taught them that that methodology. Like, he, there's nothing that Trump w- – there's no boundary he
0: won't push on. The lesson I would argue Trump taught Republicans is that they can win even if they're more explicit about that horrible stuff I mentioned before, the scapegoating, the cheating, the normative violence. If, if
1: they can drop all shame – Like and bluster that Hollywood tape and bluster through any accusations and fight impeachment and never admit to being wrong and never apologize that that tactic can win and back up all of your crazies. You know, don't censure them. Celebrate them. All of those things.
0: I mean, they arguably already stole a presidential election in, uh, you know, two thousand. George Gore. So, I, I mean, I, I just don't think many Republicans would have a problem stealing elect- I mean, resentment voters. Um, th- they're quite clear. Huge numbers of resentment voters would opt for the end of democracy if it meant that their values could their values could prevail in Washington. Do you think we would on our side? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You ask, like, how dangerous the situation are we going to be? And if, if, if there's no Trump, there just aren't many guardrails left. I mean, y- you know, Professors Levitsky and Ziblatt up at Harvard um, wrote How Democracies Died, where they showed that, that we've had a real normative deterioration in this country, and, and, and democracies require norms to function. Norms, for example, when you lose an election, you let the other side exercise power. And we've seen you know how at the state level when republicans lose elections they you know they strip the powers from the office that they just lost
1: i know that's
0: you know, that's it,
1: that's poor form
0: it's well it's, <laughs> it's, it's 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 who they are
1: it's wrong yeah it's just it's up like in north carolina appalling
0: yeah so hopefully yeah. i'm wrong about all this but i don't think so
1: i'm i am also tremendously worried uh probably only I don't know if, if you could put much between us, so I hope things turn out on the on the more optimistic side of the future than than we both may be concerned about. It's been wonderful to talk to you i I really have enjoyed it. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have
0: no i you know I don't know like we could keep talking for hours like we didn't really talk about the trans ban. Well, we've talked for an hour and a half like that's a long time
1: It is probably more than. If anyone's listening, probably more
0: than they can take, but maybe not. Maybe they're. <laughs> How long are your lectures? Well, in the American politics course, an hour and 20 minutes. And in the course I didn't tell you about, uh, which will be the politics of Harry Potter, they'll be a little shorter.
1: I have one, one last question that occurs to me. You're a professor and you're an activist.
0: I say advocate because it sounds a little less like like out there.
1: You are a professor and you're an advocate.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> and you're an advocate for things you deeply believe in and think are right. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of professors. Some have told me they steer clear of letting their students know where they are politically. Some have told me that they have changed that policy since Trump because they're so appalled by the threat to the constitution and the democracy that they couldn't stand by. And some have been activists and been on TV and writing editorials the whole time. What do you think is the right role for a professor? Why have you chosen the path that you've taken?
0: Are you talking about in the classroom or more broadly?
1: In your life, it, it's it's hardly, I mean, your students will know whether or not you're preaching to them in the class. I mean, what, you're teaching a class that is, you know. That's that's a, pr- a pretty opinionated, pretty strong statement about the country from your point of view.
0: It's an argument whose weaknesses I probe with them.
1: Yeah, I'm not criticizing the, you know you at all. I honor the people that are in this fight. I just I'm curious about your thinking about it.
0: Yeah, you know, early in the "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" conversation. Um, When scholars who opposed gays and lesbians and bisexuals in the military would go to Washington and testify that uh, lifting Don't Ask, Don't Tell would undermine unit cohesion, they thought of themselves and referred to themselves and journalists referred to them as scholars informing political debate with research. When the Palm Center opened its doors, even before we'd done anything, uh, folks who opposed gays and lesbians and bisexuals in the military said that we were homosexual activists. Part of the strategy is kind of who gets called an activist and who gets called a scholar. Um, I, I prefer to call you an advocate than an activist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 that's that was really that was funny. Um, um, so, you know, it, I feel strongly that public policy needs to be based on evidence. And I feel strongly that in many cases it's not. And that there is therefore a role for scholars to use research to inform public opinion. Now, how you do that matters. And if you do that in such a way as to cook the books or not talk about evidence that falsifies your claim or do anything misleading or unethical, that is not okay. And Paul Krugman once distinguished between an honest think tank and a chop shop in terms of, um, you know, are they producing research that only says the same thing and burying everything else, or do they talk about all the evidence they find? My understanding of what I do is use research to inform public opinion. And if my political beliefs uh, were falsified by the evidence, then I would change my beliefs. So in terms of kind of advocacy outside the classroom, I don't really see a difference between what I'm doing and what opponents of gays and lesbians in the military were doing in 93 when they went to Capitol Hill and said gays and lesbians would undermine unit cohesion, and I think Well, you're
1: assuming they actually believed that and had evidence
0: to support it then. The generals knew it was bullshit. Charles Moskos the the leading professor from Northwestern University, the late Charles Moskos, a famous sociologist. He thought he was speaking honestly. So anyways, um, but that's different than in the classroom. So what I'd say about the classroom is my goal in class is for students to develop analytical skills and to understand how American power works and how political power works in the United States. Um, And it would be an ideological choice to teach American politics in in the way that most most textbooks handle it you know here are the courts here are the here's the white house trump says the election was stolen and biden said it wasn't you know that is an ideological choice so so you can't avoid making ideological choices in pedagogy my ideological choice is to be very honest about my personal beliefs but to always invite debate over what i'm saying and to proactively expose the weaknesses in my arguments so that students can form their own opinion. I don't think it's possible to understand how political power works in the United States without that critique of GOP radicalism. Now, there's also a critique of Democrats we talk about too, but you can't, you can't understand power without understanding where the Republicans are. So, so, So that is how I think about pedagogy.
1: And I bet you that's why, if I had to hazard a guess, that you are well-received as a teacher.
0: Thanks. I've had good evaluations. Thanks again. Anything else you want to say? It's really an honor to talk with you. I just appreciate the conversation.
1: That was Aaron Belkin. Aaron is at takebackthecourtfoundation.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for great battlefield in places where
0: podcasts are found.